Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trend says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com. And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, this week, the science of art. We're taking a magnifying glass to paintings. We'll be finding forgeries, restoring masterpieces, and even creating new colours. And in the news, turning cancer cells into harmless fat cells, why one of our favourite drinks is under threat, and is there really a dark side of the moon? I'm Georgia Mills. I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First up this week, a new approach to halting cancer has been announced by scientists in Switzerland. Gerhard Christofori at the University of Basel has found a way to make cancer cells into harmless fat cells. The technique relies on the fact that the more aggressive tumour cells, which are the ones actually capable of doing the most damage and spreading to other parts of the body, are also the most chemically impressionable. So it's possible to use two existing licensed drugs to persuade them to transform from relatively unspecialised cancer cells into inert fat cells that just can't grow anymore. So these cells, the aggressive cancer cells, differ from the original tumour cells and being able to survive the bloodstream to survive in distant organs and also to become resistant to chemotherapy, for example. But that also makes them also uh, very plastic. These cells have a lot of potential to convert into other cell types. And this is essentially what we tried to use. So you're talking about persuading these cells because they're, they're highly impressionable. And that's why they're so successful on the one hand. But persuade them to become something a lot less nasty. Yes, and there we started out to essentially culture these cells in dishes, and then we used known factors and treatments that we know from, for example, embryonic development that would make up fat cells, for example. So the goal was to convert aggressive breast cancer cells into fat cells. And why did you pick on fat cells? Why do you want to make them into fat-bearing cells? Yes, there are, there are two advantages of fat cells. The first is that once a fat cell has formed, it's not dividing anymore. It's not producing more cells. The other advantage is fat cells are also highly differentiated, so they are kind of in the end stage of a function, and they are not returning back to the original uh, cell type. So they would not go back to become a, a, an aggressive cancer cell anymore. So you did these studies, first of all, in the dish. That was the testing that enabled you to find what signals do I need to expose these cells to to push them into that terminal dead end where they become fat cells and there's no going back. Exactly. And then by knowing these signals, we could deduce which drugs that are available already could be used to replace these signals and these factors and then uh, use these drugs in a mouse model of breast cancer, for example. And does it work? And it worked. It worked actually quite surprisingly well. 
what was also surprising that the, the mice that were treated did not have severe side effects or actually no obvious side effects. We, we could not see any toxicities. What we saw is that the primary tumors were not invasive anymore and that these invasive cancer cells converted into fat cells and that the fat cells were essentially just sitting there like normal fat cells in the body. And as a consequence, metastasis, so the seeding to distant organs, was also repressed. What are the drugs that you use to do this? So the drugs we used were two drugs. One is called rosaclitazone, and it's used in the clinics for the treatment of diabetes. And this drug is known to induce the conversion of stem cells into fat cells. The other drug is a cancer therapy called trametinib. It's an inhibitor of a signal that makes tumor cells divide and form more tumor cells. And if one compares the outcomes for animals that did have this treatment and animals that didn't, how do the two result sets differ? There are two major observations. The first one is that the animals that were control-treated with the placebo treatment, they showed this highly invasive, aggressive primary tumor invasion and then metastasis mainly in the lungs whereas in the mice that were treated with rosaclitazone in combination with trametinib, we saw a loss of this invasion of malignant cancer cells into the surrounding tissue, also essentially no metastasis in the lungs anymore. And if you look at the proportion of animals that responded, was it nearly all of them or just a proportion? It was all of them. But the thing about cancer is that it's notoriously heterogeneous. If you look in cancer cells, they all have a whole raft of different genetic changes because that's the nature of the beast we're dealing with. So how do you end up with all of the cells responding? Why don't we get escape and some cells nonetheless come back and bring the cancer back because it bypasses the blockade that you're applying to it? This is a very good question. This conversion of tumor cells into this aggressive, invasive, malignant cancer cells is relatively conserved in different cancer types. It's actually a program that is also used in embryonic development when certain cells have to migrate through the body to form organs, for example, during when the embryo forms and when the organs form. So we, we anticipate that this program of conversion to malignancy is well conserved in different cancer types and thus most cells will be targeted and it's possible that even different cancer types can be targeted by the same therapy. Potentially amazing news, isn't it? The next step, of course, though, is to see if this actually works as well in human cancer patients as it does in the experimental animals. But this is certainly one to watch. That was Gerhard Christofori. The work he was discussing has just been published in the journal Cancer Cell. Now, coffee is one of the world's leading love affairs. In the UK, we neck down 95 million cups of the stuff every day. The Naked Scientist office presumably responsible for about half of that. But new research suggests that up to 65% of the strains of wild coffee are at risk of extinction. Hannah Leverinch-Schlegelhofer put the kettle on and she sat down for a chat with Alex Summers, who's the glasshouse supervisor at the Cambridge Botanic Gardens, to find out a bit more about the world's favourite beverage. OK, just a standard instant coffee. Something, something for the afternoon pick-me-up? Exactly, just to keep the caffeine in the system. With a steaming cup of coffee in hand, we headed to the tropics. Okay. Well, the tropical rainforest in the glasshouse, to see where our caffeine fix comes from. The plant from which coffee comes from is a shrub. 
It's a shrub that can come from the understory of the forest or forest edge, and it reaches a reasonable size. We're talking somewhere in the realms of six, eight foot. The leaves are oval, relatively large, and they're opposite. And the actual coffee that we drink comes from the fruit. So the coffee fruit is a red berry. Imagine something about two or three times larger than the berry you would find on holly, and that's what a coffee fruit looks like. The actual coffee bean is the seed inside that fruit. So when you drink coffee, you're actually drinking the ground-up seed of a coffee plant? Absolutely. So pre the grinding stage, those beans will be cured and dried, and then they will be roasted and ground, and then you'll get the familiar powder that you will be used to for making coffee. When you see like menus at an artisan coffee shop, you see lots of different types of coffee. Where do these different types come from? Types with coffee, I guess, in a lot of cases, are very much like types with wines. So the environment has a huge part to play in the flavour of the coffee beans that you take from the plant, but also the variety of coffee as well. So there are two main species that are used in the production of coffee. There's coffea arabica and coffea canifora, which is the robusta coffees. So the top end of coffees are the, tend to be the arabica coffees, and the real workhorse of the coffee, so your instant coffee, comes from the robusta coffees. A study published in Science Advances reports the results of a global risk assessment for coffee, and the results seem quite concerning. So the key finding of the paper was that 60% of coffee species are at threat of extinction. So what we're talking about is the fact that those two species we were talking about are two species within about 124 species of coffee, and within those, 60% of them are threatened with the fact that they may no longer exist within decades to come. And that's major. What we're actually looking at here is a huge resource. If we want greater drought resistance or disease resistance within our coffee crops, then there is potential within the wild relatives of the two coffee species we've just spoken about to actually breed that in to those for future generations and for future production of new varieties and crops. From increasing numbers of droughts to faster spreading of disease, coffee species are facing a wide range of threats. I think the core risks for the threat to coffee species across their range is habitat degradation and agriculture. And as we see forests cut down for many reasons, we see the loss of habitat for coffee, but also coffee species tend to be range-restricted. This means that in many cases they've evolved to quite tight, specific climatic conditions, and therefore they're not very flexible in moving when into new habitats or new ranges when their current habitat is degraded. Disease, particularly in areas of domesticated crops where we tend to grow one or only very few varieties, become a real problem. With these species at risk, what can we do about it? There's two areas that are highlighted here, which is improved conservation in situ, so improved protection for areas or regions which have coffee wild relative species, but also from growing them outside of their normal range perspective. So things like we are here at the Botanic Garden doing that is really important as well, particularly because coffee have recalcitrant seeds. You can't store the seeds in dry, cold storage. And in this case, to build a collection of coffee outside of its normal range, you have to grow it as a plant. And one thing that we have to recognise is the importance of botanic gardens to contribute to that. And also, from a botanic gardens perspective, we all have to talk to each other more and make sure that we are 
not all just conserving a small portion of that diversity of both robusta and arabica but also of the other species i absolutely love coffee and talking to hannah was alex summers there the research she was commenting on has just been published in the journal science advances the effects of sibling aggression can be more significant than we once thought. 100 electrodes to link my nervous system with a computer and then onto the internet. The Naked Neuroscience podcast explores the workings of the brain and the nervous system in our bodies and beyond. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words and neglect might hurt your brain. So you've got the little brain slice in the recording chamber. From unravelling Alzheimer's disease to digging into dreams, join me, Katie Haler, each month as we make connections with scientists around the world and spark up conversations on the latest neuroscience news. You can listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com forward slash neuroscience or subscribe to Naked Neuroscience wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with me, Georgia Mills. And still to come, how running a fever helps you fight disease and is there a dark side of the moon? Before that, though, the headache and the sore throat that accompany a cold or a flu make you feel bad enough. So why does your body feel it has to make us feel doubly awful by throwing a fever into the mix as well and then cooking us in our own skin? Well, we knew already that some infecting microbes do grow a bit less well at higher temperatures, but now scientists in China have discovered that a higher body temperature also helps immune cells to get to the sites of infection much more efficiently. Immunologist Claire Bryant is at Cambridge University, and she's been taking a look at the study findings for us. Hello, Claire. First of all, when we have an infection, why does the body make us develop a temperature? What actually happens? So, uh, hi, Chris. Yeah, what happens is there are a bunch of proteins produced in response to infections and, and other immune processes that then drive the production of molecules called prostaglandins and they cause an increase in the body temperature. And that's really important for making a hostile environment for bugs. But also it seems that if you get this increase in temperature, it increases your chances of surviving and recovering from infection. Which is very important. Very important and it's very interesting as to why that might occur. So basically the body temperature is set in your brain, isn't it? And there are chemicals released by the response to the infection that then triggers that set point upwards. And we all do it and animals do it as well. Everything does it. It clearly has a... It clearly has a benefit to us. Yeah, absolutely. So what actually are the researchers in China saying in their paper? What did they do? So what they did was they had a look at a really interesting process that goes on, which is you need your immune cells to actually get to the site of infection, the site of inflammation. And in order to do that, the immune cells, such as T cells, for example, actually have to jump off the train of the circulation and get into the site of the tissue that's infected. So they're going around in the bloodstream, these white blood cells, and they Uh, need to be not in the blood, they need to be where the action is in your tissues. Yeah, so they're patrolling in the blood and they need to get off and into the tissues in order to work that out. So the tissues do some really neat ways of producing chemicals that will attract these cells into the tissues, but they actually need to get off, get off the train. And so what happens is that the uh, lining vessels of the bloodstream produce a bunch of sticky molecules and then the receptors in things like T-cells see these. And then what they do is they sort of stick and they roll along the blood vessel wall in this kind of sticky way until they reach a site of infection, which is indicated by chemoattractants. So those are molecules that attract these cells in. And then the the cells actually move from the blood vessel wall into the tissue. And that process stick 
roll and invade. That is how the tissue recruits the cells out of the bloodstream. It makes the blood vessels in that region that's got the infection in it more sticky than normal. So the cells can can gain a toehold and then get in. Um, But how does the temperature side of things come into that? Because we've been able to watch down microscopes, that process you've just defined for many years. We knew that blood cells begin to stick better in areas where there's an infection. So where does the temperature come in? So this is the really neat thing about this paper. So what they did is there's this bunch of proteins which are specifically upregulated when you get a fever. They're called heat shock proteins. And in this paper, what the the guys did was they showed that one of those, and only one of those proteins called HSP90, heat shock protein 90, was upregulated. And then what it was able to do was to send a signal from the inside of the cell to the outside of the cell through a very specific protein called alpha-4 integrum, which is a protein that actually makes the stickiness. It's the sticky receptor. So it's receptor. like cell Velcro. It is exactly like cell Velcro. What happens is that the HSP90 binds to the tail of the alpha-4 integrin and this upregulates it onto the cell surface. But even neater than that, this protein can bind two molecules of the integrin. So you get clumping of these receptor proteins and makes it multiple stickiness and increases the maximum stickiness to the blood vessel wall. So in other words, you've got the area where there's an infection making the blood vessels there a bit more sticky already. We knew that effect. Knew that. But when you add on to that the effect of a raised body temperature, that's making the cells that need to go to that site of infection a bit more sticky as well. So right. the combined effect is going to be it's much easier for the cells to cling onto the side of the blood vessel where there is a zone of infection and then squeeze into the infected area. Exactly right, because the alpha-4 integrin is absolutely critical for the stop and invade signal. And now we understand a bit more about this process of information. There are lots of diseases where the immune system runs amok. Autoimmune diseases like SLE and arthritis. Would it be possible to exploit this in order to damp down the immune system? Because without it, we obviously need the immune system to get rid of infection. But when we don't want the immune system attacking things, you get all kinds of consequences. Yeah, the really neat thing is now that we understand the mechanism which is involved, so this upregulation of the the heat shock protein 90, you can actually downregulate that. You can switch it off. And in doing that, you'll then reduce the stickiness and you'll reduce the level of immune invasion of these tissues. So things like in rheumatoid arthritis, for example, the joints will no longer be infiltrated by these T-cells and that should downregulate the immune response. They did this in experimental mice. Do we have the same molecules in humans? Can we assume this is applicable to us? Yeah, we do. The heat shock proteins are evolutionary conserved, as are the integrins. So it's very likely that we should be able to target immune diseases by using an approach on this sort of molecule. Claire, thanks very much for making it so clear for us. That was Claire Bryant. She's an immunologist at the University of Cambridge. And the paper that she was discussing has just come out in the journal Immunity, and it's by Feng Chen and his colleagues. They're based at the Shanghai Institute of Biochemistry and Cell Biology. And now from fact to fiction and a myth conception that's out of this world. When you look up at the moon, you always see the same thing. To some, it's a face, the man in the moon. To others, it's a giant rabbit or an elegant lady. But seeing the same face lit up has led to discussions on what must be on the other side, which some label as the dark side of the moon. Now, the phrase has been frequently repeated recently, particularly in the wake of the landing by the Chinese of their Changi 4 rover on that side of the moon. And this has got David Rothery, who is Professor of Planetary Geosciences at the Open University, almost spinning off his axis. And now he's on a lunar mission to right this heinous scientific wrong. On the 3rd of January, the Chinese landed on the dark side of the moon. Well, did they? I mean, I got fed up of hearing about it and reading about it put that way in the press, but the moon doesn't have a dark side, at least not a permanently dark side. I'm a Pink Floyd fan, but sorry, there is no dark side of the moon. 
The Chinese landed on the far side of the moon. That's the side of the moon that permanently faces away from the Earth. But it's no darker than the near side. It sees just as much sunlight as the near side of the moon does. In fact, a little bit more, because on the far side of the moon, you never see the Earth getting in the way of the sun. So let's get rid of this phrase, the dark side of the moon. Metaphorically, it's dark, but it's misleading. It is the far side of the moon. Now, like almost every known moon in the solar system, the moon has this property of rotating once for every orbit it makes around its planet. So one side, the near side, always faces towards the planet. and The opposite side, the far side, always faces away from the planet. And if you're on the surface of the far side of any of these moons, you wouldn't be able to see the planet because it would be below the horizon. Now, why does this happen? Well, it's due to tides. Tidal forces have slowed down each moon's rotation so that it rotates exactly once per orbit. And that then means that you don't have to be distorting the shape of the body by moving tidal bulges around the solid surface of the body because the tidal bulges can stay fixed in place, facing towards and away from the planet. So that's it. Our moon has a far side, but not a dark side. So please, if you hear somebody talk about the Chinese or anybody else landing on the dark side of the moon, gently put them right. But what a great achievement to land there. On the far side of the moon, there's no line of sight to the Earth. You can't get radio signals to and fro. So the Chinese put the Kuiyao relay satellite in a halo orbit around a Lagrange point on the far side of the moon from the Earth, so it could always see the far side of the moon and over horizon to the Earth. Brilliant technical job to land on the far side of the moon. And uh, we're going to learn a lot about the far side of the moon when we put rovers down in more interesting places there. Thank you very much to David Rothery, who will hopefully never have to hear anyone say the wrong thing again, and he'll be able to go on enjoying his Pink Floyd music in peace. Meanwhile, if there's some sinister and suspicious-sounding science that you've come across, do drop us a line to chris at thenakedscientist.com, and we'll take a look. Now, sticking with space science, during its 4.6 billion-year history, the Earth has been bombarded with comets, asteroids, and on one occasion, even a planet smashed into us. The product of this latter collision was the Moon, and the Moon can reveal a lot more about what's hit the Earth than the planet itself, because, unlike Earth, the Moon doesn't have weather, tectonic plates, or ice ages constantly remodelling its landscape. Instead, the lunar surface carries a near pristine record of the sorts of objects that have been slamming into us over the eons. And speaking with Adam Murphy, Southampton University's Thomas Gurnan has worked out how to interpret the lunar landscape to decode what has been arriving and when. Our team used data collected by NASA's uh, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is a spacecraft which has been orbiting the Moon for the past decade or so, gathering data. And what we found was a strong link between the rock abundance surrounding these big impact craters and their age. What that means is the younger craters tended to have much larger blocks exposed around them than the older craters, which were surrounded by finer material. And this correlation was kind of substantiated by craters that we have dated quite well using samples, for example, from the Apollo mission. So using this really strong correlation, we were able to actually date over 100 of the Moon's largest impact craters and effectively produce the first chronology of these large craters on the Moon. So really interestingly, both the Earth and the Moon reveal a strong increase in the impact flux around 290 million years ago, so just before the age of the dinosaurs. 
So we think that there were two to three times more rocks colliding with the, with the planet, with Earth, just before the dinosaurs had evolved. So it's possible that this spike made the impact thought to have wiped out the dinosaurs on Earth more likely. How do things weather on the moon? Because there's no atmosphere there, so there's no kind of wind and weather. How do things actually weather down? So what we think is the the large rocks are effectively breaking down over hundreds of millions of years. And we think that the rocks are breaking down due to two things. First is bombardment of micrometeorites. These are tiny fragments which are constantly pummeling the moon's surface. And the other reason is that we have thermal cycling. So the lunar day is on the order of 28 Earth days. And so we switch between 14 days of daylight and heating the rocks up and 14 days of nighttime when the rocks are cooling down. And that rapid heating and cooling and the extremes is what breaks them down, yeah? Absolutely. So they are, we think, gradually breaking down. And I guess, you know, over billion year timescales, your big blocks are going to turn into soil or what they call lunar regolith. What implications does uh, your data have for Earth then? We compared the age distribution on the Moon with those of the Earth. And what we discovered was surprising that the actual impact fluxes were almost identical on the Moon and the Earth over the past 650 million years. And this was surprising because we often assume that the Earth's impact record is biased due to erosion and so on. Was there any period of Earth that doesn't have craters that you were able to find did have bombardment? So startlingly, what we found was the similarity between the Earth and the Moon stopped at 650 million years ago. So what we see is an abrupt cutoff on the Earth of the impact craters, which otherwise we would have expected to be present using the Moon as an analogy. And so this lines up really well with a period in which the Earth experienced really severe global glaciation dubbed Snowball Earth, which is thought to have lasted for tens of millions of years. And in another recent paper, we demonstrated that as compelling evidence that there was really high levels of erosion during this snowball phase. And what we suggest is erosion on the order of three to five vertical kilometres on average across the continents. And this is uh, unlike anything ever seen during Earth history. So this is effectively a period in which we've, we've scraped all of the really big impact craters off the face of the Earth's surface, almost like a Brillo pad. What's the next step then? What's the next thing to look at? We're excited about pushing the limits of this technique and maybe seeing if it applies further back through history over like several billion years of time. What we've done is is use the moon as a catalogue in order to effectively understand Earth processes. So we can learn a lot about, for example, erosion and plate tectonics through Earth's history by looking at other bodies within our solar system. And that's really exciting for me. Exciting for many people, I'm sure. That was Thomas Gernon speaking with Adam Murphy, and that paper was just published in the journal Science. And if you'd like to follow up with any of the stories that we've been covering this week, you can get the transcripts as well as the references to the original papers that we've been discussing on our website at nakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Georgia Mills. And for the next 25 minutes or so, we're going to be exploring the science of art and the art 
in science, from preserving the past to finding forgeries and creating colours. With us is Paola Ricciardi. She's a research scientist at the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge and Stuart Semple, who's a contemporary artist and also a creator of a rainbow of very interesting new pigments. First up, the art in science. Scientific illustrations have always been vital to science's history. Charles Darwin was a scientific illustrator and so was author Beatrix Potter. Adam Murphy's been learning more about why scientists might want to pick up a pencil. Today, we have photos, films and even virtual reality to show us our science. But these things weren't always about. Before then, scientists had to use incredibly, perfectly detailed drawings of the things they wanted to discuss. I took a trip to the Whipple Library in Cambridge to learn about this from Katie Reinhardt and Sitzka Franson. First, Katie told me about the overlap between science and art. I can't give you sort of exact numbers, but, but there are instances of both. So some of the fellows, like Robert Hooke, were themselves made many images. We know that Robert Hooke apprenticed with Peter Lilly, the painter. So many of the things in the archives, he made himself. Many of the drawings, he did. But many fellows didn't. Uh, We also know that they worked with craftsmen and artists who made images for them, particularly for their published works, because making woodblocks or making engraved images, cutting a copper plate for an engraved image, was a specialized skill. So there you'd need to go to someone who had the training to do that. But how important was art to these scientists? Sitzka Franson told me more. It was part of a gentleman's education to learn to draw. And that is not only for science, but also to understanding art. So we know from handbooks in the 17th century that people were told to look at engravings or famous portraits or other paintings and copy them to learn to see And that is, of course, a very important skill also within uh, science. Then we dived into the library archive, starting with a book by Robert Hooke, contemporary and rival of Isaac Newton. And the book of his that I was shown was very, very interesting to this history lover. This is a first edition from 1665 of the Micrographia, which was Hooke's book about the things he saw through the microscope. And one of the things he's seen is this... (coughs) Is this a flea, a giant image of a flea? (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, It's exactly as you say, it's a giant flea. How did this image come about? How did he actually get this? So we know that Robert Hooke was a draftsman, as we already said. So he probably drew the image himself and then had copper plate cutters or copper plate engravers to make the actual image for the publication. And one really important thing to realise is looking at this image, which is almost two A4 pages in current size. It is a compound image. So if you look through a microscope, through a 17th century microscope, you can never see an entire flea like this. So it means he had to look several times, he had to move the flea and see through the lens, and then all these things that he saw then connect into one image. Images today are commonplace in science. What was so revolutionary about these ones? I think the revolutionary thing that everyone had seen a flea before because they were really more common than now. So they were (laughs) jumping on us and on on the animals around. But uh, no one had ever seen them so close by. So they didn't realise that there were hairs on the legs, for example. Other than drawing pictures of tiny things, where else was this so important? One thing that we've really found in this research we've been doing is that images were used in every discipline of science. So we see images of astronomical observations, of stars and comets, of things seen through the telescope. 
We see ones of human anatomy around dissections, around kidney and bladder stones that were cut out of people, um, sometimes before, sometimes after they died. Uh, We see them in what we would now call physics or chemistry, because we see drawings of instruments that were invented or designed, sometimes that actually were created and used, different air pumps, and sometimes ones that weren't, kind of fictional instruments or ones that never came to fruition, that they didn't work or were never created. And on top of that, we also see many, many mathematical diagrams, kind of the proofs you made in geometry and algebra when you were in school, those type of mathematical proofs and diagrams we see all the time. And the time of scientific illustration was an important one for women, who were often excluded from other aspects of science. There were, there were women artists working. Um, and we have several examples um, within the Royal Society again. So, for example, the, um, um, the two daughters of Martin Lister uh, helped or made many of the images for his publications. Um, so there are definitely women involved. And we know even less about the women than we do know about the, than the male scientists. But it is possible that some of the artists of, wh- of whom we don't know the name were actually women. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a good point about... <clears throat> both women scientists and women image makers, that in in this period of time, much of that labor is still uncredited. So we don't know, just as we don't know who did the engravings for many of these images, those unknown people could be women. And women we know uh, kind of disproportionately weren't given credit always for the work they did. Katie Reinhardt and Sitzka Franzen there. But what if you need to protect old, precious artwork? How can we learn more about it and keep it safe without damaging it and also find out who painted it in the first place? Well, Paola Ricciardi is a scientist with the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge and she researches non-invasive ways to study artefacts. Paola, welcome. How do you begin when someone hands you something priceless and unique? Hi, Chris. Well, the first thing we do is we take a really good look at it. Um, We use a range of imaging and spectroscopic methods to figure out, for example, who painted something, how did they paint it, where did they get the materials that they used, who commissioned the artwork, why did they commission it, when was it commissioned, what's the context behind the artwork. We do a lot of forensic science, I guess you could say. It's like a post-mortem for a painting. Absolutely. That's exactly what we do. (laughs) But but someone hands you a picture and you can tell all that just from the picture? Well, you have to take it to the lab. And you have to use quite a different range of light methods. So we use x-rays, we use infrared light, UV light, visible light. And with that range of different spectroscopic methods, you can actually figure out lots of things about, you know, a painting. Just to give you an example, if you use infrared light to take an image of a painting, usually you can see what's underneath. And what is underneath could be a sketch that the artist made before he painted the object. And different artists usually have different drawing styles. And so that's a really good way to distinguish, for example, between the work of different artists, even if it's not immediately apparent from the painting itself. Is the key, the non-destructive aspect of this, that you're using light to interrogate the surface and the light just bounces pretty much harmlessly off, but there's information written into that light that's coming back and that gives you the clues as to what's in there? Exactly, yes. We exploit the different ways that light interacts with matter. So it can backscatter, you know, it it can bounce off in different ways, as you said. And those different ways um, means we can detect 
whatever light comes back to our instruments. Um, so that tells you the sort of chemical imprint or fingerprint that's in the pigments that the artist used. Precisely. So You can get a chemical signature almost, can you? Exactly, yes. So some methods such as Raman spectroscopy, uh, which has nothing to do with noodles, but more to do with, a, <laughs> with an Indian scientist who actually discovered the effect. So it's Indian rather than Chinese uh, Yes, or, it is Japanese. Indian. Mr yeah. Raman <laughs> was an Indian scientist who discovered the Raman effect. And so what that does is gives you the molecular fingerprint of your pigment in this case. Uh, it identifies exactly what kind of material you're looking at. And presumably different people who went to art school at different times in history would have worked with a specific or fairly unique palette that would have been unique to them as a painter, but also the era in which they were working. Is that, that a reasonable deduction? It's a really good point, but unfortunately for most of history, the palette is pretty much the same. <laughs> so, so what works, works, so you carry on using it. Yeah, exactly. It's only in the late 18th, early 19th century that we start seeing different pigments coming up. And that's actually detecting those pigments in historic old master paintings, for example, is a really good way to it's test if, someone, yeah, yeah. if someone's done something to them. Yeah. Um, do you also get to understand how time affects those pigments? Because one of the keys is, you know... If, if we're looking at a picture and it's 500 years old, that's had a lot of time on the wall. It's had a lot of light and sunlight bleaching it. It's had oxidation. People used to smoke a lot around mm -hmm. these things. Yeah. And Elizabethans were notorious, weren't they? <laughs> they used to get these uh, enormous pipes and things. There would have been clouds of smoke going everywhere. So can you begin to see how those pigments have changed over time, how they've chemically interacted with the environment they've been in, and therefore, A, how to predict what it would have looked like, that mm -hmm. picture, and B, how to put it right? Yes, yes, that's exactly what we do. And that's why we work so much in collaboration with conservators, those tasks to protect and, you know, stabilise and conserve these objects for the future. So we try and detect the various um, types of degradation, for example, that you might see on a painting and figure out whether we can stop that. We don't usually want to reverse it or it's not always possible to reverse that. You don't usually want a painting today to look like it hasn't had any history. You know, it is a 500-year-old object. Yeah. It's I mean, supposed someone, to look 500 years old. Someone did say to me that, you know, part of the art is that it continues to evolve and change. So it would be a bit wrong for us to intervene in that natural ageing process, which would be robbing something away from the art to, to wind time back. But, I, but can you do it digitally? If you take a picture and, of that and you understand how the image has been changing over time chemically, mm -hmm. can you ask the computer, well, wind the clock back wherever you see these different pigments being used and put them to how they would have been. Absolutely. In fact, a team at the Getty Museum has done exactly that. And they did that comparing a painting, which has aged and darkened over time, with a, a manuscript illumination painted by the same artist because the manuscript has been closed in a book for 500 years. And so it hasn't aged. It hasn't been exposed to light and smoke and, and other degrading agents. And so they took that colour and sort of digitally manipulated the painting to make it look like that. And, and are you shocked? Does it look does it look strikingly different? Are what it, it, we it are being told does. this is this yeah. is what Van Gogh <laughs> painted. It's, it's even you know in that short history, it's changing. Absolutely, it's very different, and um, it's amazing actually. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so are there instances where you would want to intervene? Because I've, I've heard it said by various chemists and things that you do end up with various chemicals that can be destructive mm -hmm. to a painting and actually you do need to intervene and stop things. So are there ways to do that? And can you do it in a way that is sympathetic to the art? Absolutely. Conservators nowadays would intervene on a painting if someone in the past intervened in a non-sympathetic way and then you want to remove that previous intervention and make sure that you preserve the painting. Oh, that's true, it. because, of course, techniques that they would have had 100 years ago and nothing like a, not a patch on Absolutely what you've got not. today. So all, you spend old restorations. loads of your time unpicking <laughs> people's best attempts and best intentions. Absolutely, yes. And have they ruined it for everybody or, or can you get, get that off? 
It depends. <laughs> Sometimes they have. Sometimes you can't get it back, but not always. So what happens then if you come along, you touch up a piece of art and make it look nice and stop the clock on it, and then I take it to a gallery and they say it's a forgery because, look, there's all these pigments that shouldn't be in there in there. Well, what we do today <laughs> usually is use um, pigments and materials that are actually compatible with the history of the painting, and we also right. document everything that we do. So there's a paper trail. Absolutely. Very important. Paola, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. That's Paola Ricciardi, and she is from the Fitzwilliam Museum, and she's a research scientist there working out how to do non-destructive analysis and also preservation of important works of art and other artefacts. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and with Chris Smith. Now, this week we are painting a picture of the science that is in art. And coming up, we'll be talking to an artist who specialises in making new paints with very interesting twists. But first, what happens when an old painting isn't quite what it appears to be? As long as there's been art, there have been people willing to forge it. So how can science help weed out the masterpieces from the master fakes? To find out, Adam Murphy spoke to Geoffrey Taylor from the New York Art Forensics Institute. We begin looking at it with a lot of different types of light, so we're looking at it with normal light, visible light, and examining it very closely with microscopes. And then we move to the ultraviolet spectrum. And then we move to the infrared spectrum. And we use that to see kind of through the painting and possibly to notice things like underdrawing or other things underneath the paint layer. So you could find something underneath that's absolutely not what you would expect from that artist. Yes, you could. And of course, that's a common feature of a forgery, is that good forgeries will use, we have kind of a crude term for it, a donor painting. And that means a painting that they've picked up at a flea market and usually scraped down some of the paint, sometimes just painted right over it. But that will give them a good period canvas, stretcher. So all those parts of the painting will seem old and convincing. And so to look underneath and to perhaps see an earlier painting that would be entirely inconsistent, that'll be a clue right there. And when you've done that, what would be the next step to move into? What we're looking at in general when we're doing an art forensics analysis is we're particularly looking at the pigments and trying to come up with a date that this artwork could have been made and we really are using a knowledge of the history of pigments to make that evaluation and one of the driving forces in the evolution and, and development of new pigments is just moving away from toxicity and that particularly is the case with whites so lead white was the dominant white for painters really up until the 19th century. And then they invented new ones in the 19th century that weren't so toxic based in barium and zinc, but they weren't as good either. And then the really key invention is the development of titanium white, titanium dioxide, which we use a date of 1921 as its introduction. And that's really one of our most crucial dates is looking at whether an artwork contains titanium because that will very often help us solve a lot of cases. Latter-day forgeries, things made in the 50s and 60s and 70s and more recently, but purporting to be from the early 20th century, we can often 
rule them out by the presence of titanium. So if it's, say, a Vermeer, then that wouldn't ever have titanium white in it. So if it is there, you know it's a forgery. No, it wouldn't, yeah. I mean, in Vermeer, the paintings of his period, the 17th century, those are really simple. I mean, when we're looking at a potentially Rembrandt or potentially Van Dyck, it's a really small bunch of pigments that those artists had. It's amazing what great paintings they had. I mean, they're like working with like six or seven pigments and that's all they have. It just gets much harder as time goes by and you're looking at a painting that purports to be from a much more recent period. How many forgeries do you get compared to genuine articles? It's sad. <laughs> um, it's around, I would say, 80 to 90% of what we study is not what the client was hoping it would be. And that can be many different variations. I mean, a forgery is where there's a clear intent to deceive. So usually that means a signature by a famous artist and the painting is not. And it was clearly produced with the intention of deceiving someone. We also just have fakes, things that weren't necessarily malicious. They've just been misattributed. And we have a lot of those cases. Or we might be looking at a 17th century painting and the client was really hoping it was by a very famous master and it turns out that we determine it really, yes, it's a 17th century painting, but it's most likely by a lesser master working in the circle of that artist. So there's many different ways that a, an artwork can be less than authentic. But yeah, 80 to 90% of the time, it's kind of bad news. Oh, dear. Very worthwhile keeping an open mind then when you're looking to pick up a bit of art. I suppose the bottom line is buyer beware. That was Geoffrey Taylor there. We still have with us uh, Paola Ricciardi from the Fitzwilliam Museum. Paola, is there evidence in your view that people are using the scientific techniques that Geoffrey was outlining there in order to do these sorts of forensics, in order to make better fakes? Absolutely. I think forgers are very clever. So they, they know they need to use historically appropriate pigments, for example, and techniques. But even already in the early 20th century, Van Meger and the famous forger of Vermeers, he would bake his canvases to make sure they cracked the right way before he, he sold them. So is the work of people like Jeffrey Taylor going to become much more difficult in future because people are on to how you guys do what you do to find the real deal? I'm afraid it is. Paola Ricciardi there. Thank you very much. Now, from pigments used hundreds of years ago to the magic that the modern art world is cooking up today. With us is artist Stuart Semple, who is something of a magic factory when it comes to paint. Hi, Stuart. Hello, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing very well, Good. thank you. So tell me about the wonders inside your magical paint lab. Oh, I don't know where you start. It's a bit like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory in there. We've got paints that emit more light than any other paint, the pinkest pink that ever pinked, the blackest black you've ever <laughs> painted with, things that change colour, things that compost, all sorts of stuff. Well, I don't know where to start. <laughs> How about you tell me about your, your uh, light emitting paint then, your glowing paint? Yeah, we call it lit and it's basically a similar sort of technology that you probably had on your bedroom ceiling as a kid where stars glowed but mm. ours is turned up to 12 on the dial if you like it goes for 12 hours it's so bright even in 
daylight it's emitting light well um, i remember those stars they were dim after you know a half an yeah, hour yeah they were a bit away. rubbish weren't they um <laughs> so that's supercharged this? basically we use different earth activators so these are naturally occurring elements and metals that absorb energy and then chuck it out again as light but we found by combining different ones they would emit different frequencies of light at different times so in essence this mixture kind of self-charges itself so as a really bright initial glow and then an afterglow that just seems to sort of go on almost indefinitely. And um, how did you go about finding these? Nowadays, I actually have a forensic scientist in my studio, um, Jemima, who's absolutely awesome. So she does a lot of research, a lot of development, a lot of sourcing and a lot of playing. And we finally got a mix that played well together where the different wavelengths of energy affected each other and made it work. I've got to say, I haven't seen many glowing paintings. So what kind of things does this one get used for? You wouldn't believe the things people are using it for. <laughs> I mean, one guy the other day mixed it in varnish and painted the whole floor of his house. Um, <laughs> we've had developing countries, interestingly, using it on road markings and just artists making awesome sculptures and paintings, all sorts of stuff. Right. And now to go to the other end of the spectrum, you mentioned you have the blackest black. Yeah. Yeah, we do. How? (laughs) How? Um, Where do you start? Let me start with the story of how and why I I made The Blackest Black, probably, which is about two years ago, uh, a lab grew a forest of nanoparticles, these nanotubes, on surfaces, and it trapped almost all light, and it was absolutely amazing. And the world was really excited, 99% of light, unbelievable. And they did an exclusive deal with an artist called Nish Kapoor, so only he could use it in his art. And everyone was mortally offended and really annoyed, so I made the world's pinkest pink, and I put it on my website, and I said, any artist can use the pinkest pink as long as they're not Anish Kapoor. And I had to agree to a legal disclaimer that they weren't him or they weren't going to share it with him. Anyway, after I did that, everybody started writing in to me and Anish actually got the pink and put it on his Instagram, which is a whole other story. And everyone's saying, you must make a black that's better than his black. So here we are two years later. We made black too, which was an awesome matte black. But at that time, we had to use pigments that existed And the problem with those is almost every black pigment, carbon's the most popular one, reflects some kind of light. If you think of a lump of coal or charcoal, it reflects light. It's shiny. We wanted something that would absorb light. So we had to add additives to it that we borrowed from the cosmetics industry to mattify it, to dull it down, to stop that light reflection from the front. Unfortunately, when you add mattifiers to black paint, it adds whiteness. So you start to get into tones of grey, which is actually not what you want at all. Since then, we were working on Black 3 and we finally finished it about a week ago after sending a thousand out to beta testers around the world. The way we approached that is we collaborated with a lab in Dallas who actually custom grew a pigment for us, which is essentially a black pigment that's grown on a nano-sized ceramic microsphere. So we have a matte black pigment which is amazing right and is this better at absorbing light then it doesn't release as much as the other black absolutely so it is not reflective it has like zero reflectance the next thing we have to do is mix it into a paint which is the other side of this innovation which is we've created an acrylic polymer to hold this stuff that has more bonds available than any other acrylic polymer which means we can supercharge it with pigment. What that means is in the visible light spectrum, we're seeing between 98 and 99% of light absorption. 
which in English means you get insanely weird-looking black stuff. So if you paint it on 3D things, they look 2D, like silhouettes. It's bizarre. Um, what kinds of things do you think it'll be used for, and will you let that other artist use it? <laughs> no, he can't have it, unless he apologises <laughs> and gives me my £3.99 back um, for the pink. I, I've no idea what people are going to use it for. So many people are asking. I know our black two is used in photography studios, and some of the greatest artists in the world are using it, but... I don't know, it's useful in telescopes, it's useful in paintings. I mean, the black is black, there's so much you can make with it. Awesome. And just very, very briefly, what's next? Next, we created a eucalyptus-based, fully compostable glitter, um, which is absolutely awesome. And we're looking to take that technology into acrylic paints so that we can make plant-based, eco-friendly acrylic paints. Brilliant eco painting. Thank you very much artist and paint creator Stuart Semple and thank you to our other guests this week Jeffrey Taylor, Paola Ricciardi, Katie Reinhardt and Sitska Franzken. Hopefully if you weren't convinced already we've shown you there's a lot more science in art than meets the eye. Well now it's time to finish the programme and it's time for question of the week and Jenny Gracie has been digging up an answer to this for Marcus. How can oak trees and others grow so huge without making a great hole in the earth? Where does a mass come from, if not from the dirt? It's quite a long question, so let's shorten it to Do plants eat dirt? Our expert, Andrew Witherall, from the National School of Forestry at the University of Cumbria, gave us this answer. Whilst it is rather wonderful to visualise plants having a tiny mouth at the end of each root, a kind of upside-down Venus flytrap, the short answer is no, plants do not eat soil. As anyone with houseplants will have learned, You do not have to go around topping pots up with soil as plants grow. The proof that plants do not eat soil is attributed to a 17th century scientist called Jean-Baptiste Van Helmont. Van Helmont weighed a willow before planting it in a known weight of dried soil. Five years later he reweighed the tree, dried the soil and reweighed that too. The willow had increased in mass, but the soil had not decreased. He might have thought that the soil had replenished in some mysterious way but Van Helmont actually concluded that the increase in weight arose out of water only. Evan, underscore AU in the forum, also told this story about the willow experiment and noted that the main mass of a tree is the water and cellulose content. Cellulose provides plant structure and is made up of long chains of carbon, oxygen and hydrogen. But did this really all come from just water? Despite his careful experimentation, this is unfortunately also the wrong answer. We now know that while plants derive water and nutrients from soil, their mass comes from air in the presence of sunlight. Einstein's E equals MC squared is the most famous formula in the world, but as a forester, my favourite is the net photosynthesis equation, in which sunlight converts carbon dioxide and water into glucose and oxygen. Glucose is a sugar, and this acts as a food source, allowing trees like oaks to grow so huge. And the oxygen? Well, that keeps us going. On the forum, Kyra SPO agreed with this reasoning and wrote, Water and carbon dioxide from the air are the raw materials that account for most of the mass of a tree. So there's our answer, photosynthesis. When plants need more food, they just have a light snack. Next time, we're considering this question from Bree. If a person is born completely deaf and can't hear anything, which language do they think in? 
Thank you, Jenny Gracie. And what do you think? And what language do you think it? You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook. We're also on Instagram and we're on Twitter. We're at, at Naked Scientist. Or you can join in the debate on the forum. That's nakedscientist.com slash forum. And that is it for this week. Thanks to Adam Murphy who put the programme together. And do be sure to tune in next week when we're going to be hopping into the car to take a look at car travel and the car's long road towards hopeful sustainability. Do join us then. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.